You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European live actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 209. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. Suarikap. Oh, hey son, hey son, Andras. How are you? Where are you? I not think I bad, hear cars bad. in the background. Are you out on the street? Cars in the background and a lot of noise in the background because I'm sitting in a hotel room in uh, Thailand and it's the middle of the day, so it's quite busy. Yeah. Especially it's one of the busiest cities in the country. It's uh, Pattaya. Mm. It's a massive, massive tourist resort area and uh, full of tourists. But I like staying inside. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not particularly fond of places like that. And uh, yeah, the, the afternoon program is not to start for about another two hours or so. So I'm free to record now. Yeah, very good. And, very good. But I'm happy to report that I'm healthy. Oh, good. At least to the extent that I, I used to be. So I'm not less healthier than I was at home. <laughs> no dengue this time. No dengue, no coronavirus, more on that later. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a bit earlier in the morning here. It's about seven o'clock in the morning, but uh, fine. Uh, we are, I don't think it comes through on the recording, but it's quite windy. We have the remaining parts of uh, the storm called Kiara, I think, that swept mm-hmm. in over yeah. the the UK a couple uh, or a day ago or so and now it's coming here but it's not as bad here as it was in the UK so yeah but I'm fine yeah it would be scary if it were worse or or just just the same strength having traveled so far yeah 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 that would be really scary so good to hear that you're okay mm-hmm. um unfortunately Yelena is not with us today mm. i think she's traveling yeah, she's probably traveling towards home, whatever it is, uh, might be the UK or uh, Latvia. We don't know exactly where she is at the moment, but we hope that for the next... <laughs> we misplaced yeah, her. The next, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we misplaced her. Can't locate her, but uh, we'll keep trying. Yep. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> But we've still prepared a um, show for, for, for our listeners. So, But I don't think we can start the show without uh, mentioning some of the latest information on the novel coronavirus. Mm, yeah. I, yeah, especially now that I'm currently in Thailand. That mm. is because of the country's proximity to China and the relatively large number of cases is considered a risky place to mm. travel by many around the world. And uh, when I set off on my journey 10 days ago, six last-minute cancellations happened to my tour. Wow. Even though Hungary is not among the countries that have reported cases, Hungarian state media is full of scary reports of terrible deaths and people collapsing on the streets, which is, by the way, something that has been shown to be unproven, Mm -hmm. to be happening, never mind. Anyhow, they are building up fear like we haven't ever seen, even when their outrageous anti-refugee campaign was on a couple of years ago. It was terrible. It was disgusting. But this is probably even worse. They they just try to spread fear as widely as possible in the country. And it works. Yeah. So uh, these reports are vague enough to give the impression that the whole region of Southeast Asia is in the brink of collapse. Yeah. And people just keep cancelling their tours. 
I just learned that I would be I would not be traveling to Hong Kong and Taiwan next month, mm-hmm. uh, where I was scheduled to go because of the restrictions, uh, the travel restrictions in the area. But they belong to China. Uh, no, no, not Taiwan though. Mm. Taiwan is absolutely independent, but still there are several very serious uh, restrictions. But I'm happy to report I'm here in Southeast Asia and it's not in the brink of collapse. No. So, <laughs> Why do you think uh, the Hungarian authorities, because I believe those are behind the news and the fear-mongering, why are they doing this? Is this a distraction from things happening at home? or Partly that, but partly it's uh, their only means to manipulate people is fear. Yeah. And they've proven that time and again. It's like their fuel, their support basis is that of fear. So that's how they operate. Mm. And now they're trying to pose as the protectors of the nation. So Uh according to them, the reason why we don't have that in the country yet is because of the quick and very effective actions taken by the Hungarian government. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's not a question that is very frequently asked. (laughs) So, I mean, China is absolutely a different issue. The country is basically in the process of becoming completely cut off from the rest of the world. Mm. That will definitely have its its large-scale effects, I'm sure. Mm. Imagine that basically all countries and their production is linked to Chinese labor and manufacturing at least to some extent. Every country is affected. It's going to be affected by that. Factories had to be shut down. People have to stay at home. That will have a global effect. I'm absolutely sure about that. But we're not here to talk about those effects. We will discuss by others in, in detail, I'm sure. Hmm. But uh, there was something else that I wanted to mention, and that is the latest facts that we know of and that we are aware of. The overall numbers released in the daily situation reports of the World Health Organization looks very scary. Mm. But we have to try to put all of them in perspective. As of the time of this recording, there are 40,554 confirmed cases globally, with 910 deaths. But 40,235 of the cases, and 909 out of the 910 cases, or death cases, occurred in China. Mm. So the 24 countries that reported to have confirmed cases share 319 of them and so far one death. To put that in perspective, this has been going on since the end of December, so for almost two months now. But the annual epidemics of influenza, for example, usually result in three to four million cases of severe illness and hospitalization and about 290,000 to 650,000 deaths on a global scale. Mm, wow. But the flu is a vaccine-preventable disease. And yet, again, according to the WHO, vaccine uptake among those at elevated risk in most countries is below 40%. About 44,000 people die because of the flu every year in the European region alone. Mm. And we don't see such a great panic over it, do no. we? No. Yeah. I'm not saying this is not a serious world health issue, of course. But sometimes it helps to look a bit further than what we see right now in front of us. It's, it's hard to say how much worse this is than the flu, because we only have statistical data on confirmed cases of the coronavirus. And it's difficult to obtain data on the flu to start with, because some people don't even end up seeing their GP or the GP diagnoses something as the flu without it being serologically confirmed. So it's a very 
complex situation. And since we're, we're the European Skeptics Podcast, we need to focus on Europe, right? Yep. Among the countries affected by the novel coronavirus, there are eight in Europe so far. Belgium, the United Kingdom, Sweden, Finland, France, Spain, Italy, and Germany. <laughs> Have you noticed that uh, Hungary is not among them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where the panic is But I'm being sure generated. it's Viktor Orban who has stopped it at the border. He's very brave standing there waving a flag yeah, and personally, stopping the personally, virus of course. from entering the country. Of course. Yes. He's the fucking hero of Europe. I'm sure I mean. he is. So it looks like in countries outside China, the mortality rate is way below 1%. Hmm. Around 0.3, actually. Whereas in China, it's about 2.5% of the cases that result in death. Hmm. There are multiple reasons why that might be the case. Uh, One of the main main ones is said to be poorer health services in rural areas in China. But that is being dealt with quite impressively, actually. But there are other factors as well, like pre-existing conditions in people's respiratory systems that make them more vulnerable to the disease. And... These conditions can occur as a result of long-term exposure to dust particles, smoke and air pollutants, uh, a lot of which you can experience in China. Yeah, that's right. But but the country is doing everything in their power to keep it under control. A weird thing is that among those hundreds who died as a result of the disease, there is a doctor who was probably the first person to warn that there is something serious going on in the hospital he worked at. And because he was a whistleblower... Criticizing Chinese authorities for their lack of action at the beginning, conspiracy theories are now circulating about him having been murdered by the state. So you, ah, it doesn't really help, does it? No. It is very unlikely. The state deserves a lot of criticism for the way they handled the situation at the beginning. They tried to cover it all up, or at least to fly under the radar. But but once it appeared to be a clear mistake. They acted on it quite quickly and hopefully effectively. We, it looks like the number of new cases per day has already peaked. So there is hope, but there's no way of knowing what exact turns the events might take. So I think what's important is that whatever health regulators and health authorities come out as recommendations to all of us, we follow them closely. And there are a couple of things. It, it was funny to see how many people wore masks on the plane. Mm. Health authorities very clearly state that it doesn't help. It doesn't make a difference, no. It doesn't. So it only makes a difference if you are ill yourself. So if you are the ones who needs to be stopped from spreading the disease, then it's more or less effective. But in getting the disease, it's not. Mm. It's washing your hands several times a day, making sure that you try not to touch your face and your mouth and your eyes and things like that. Again, as you usually say, quite rightly, don't take health advice from us. (laughs) (laughs) No. But we are just repeating what the health authorities usually say about this. So, yeah, yeah, I just thought that we couldn't couldn't start the show without Uh, without making an update, uh, covering an update on on, on what's going on. Yeah, uh, that's right. This is what everyone uh, keeps everyone awake now. Yeah, right. But we also have good news. Good. Totally different topic. As mentioned before, SkepCon 2020, the German Conference for Science and Critical Thinking, will take place in Berlin on the 21st to 23rd of May. And this conference will be held in German. Tickets are now available. And here comes the good news. We have a ticket which we will lot out to our listeners. Ta-da! Mm-hmm. 
again. So, yeah, good. very good, very good. All set up by our special German reporter and correspondent, Annika, of course. If you want to win a ticket, all you need to do is to send us an email at info at the ESP.eu and put Skepcon 2020 in the header and uh, then you will take part in our Skepcon ticket raffle. So send that to us before the 15th of March and we will announce the winner here on a future episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unbelievable. It was almost like yesterday that we did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, time <laughs> and, passes quickly. Uh, that means that uh, a whole year has passed. There is another thing that uh, we can say that about, and that is the nominations for Nobel Prize, and especially the Nobel Peace Prize, which uh, looks like... Uh, Are we nominated? No, not, unfortunately not. Not us, not. okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but it looks like Greta Thunberg has been nominated again for the Nobel Peace Prize, actually. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, we'll see. We'll yeah, see. and uh, this time the nomination uh, that had to be submitted by the 1st of February came from two of her fellow Swedes, mm-hmm. Jens Holm and Hakan Svenelin. Do you know them? I don't, actually, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they are the members of the left party of Sweden. Aha. Uh-huh. So the, the Nobel Committee is not commenting on nominations, of course, but uh, the two parliamentarians did, saying that Greta has worked hard to make politicians open their eyes to the climate crisis, and they are convinced that action for reducing our emissions and complying with the Paris Agreement is therefore also an act of making peace. Mm. Well, I don't know, actually. Yeah. (laughs) She definitely has stirred up quite a bit of controversy, didn't she? Yes. And I do believe she's expected to do even more of that in Glasgow later this year, where the next UN climate change conference is to take place. Mm Mm-hmm. But since the conference is in November and the Nobel announcements are in October, not the ceremony, but it's a ceremony that takes place in December, but we will all know by then whether she gets the recognition or not. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Before the, the, the climate conference. Hmm. We'll see. But uh, I, I'm quite happy seeing her being nominated again. This is the second second year in a row. Uh, yes, yeah. No, that's fine. I, I think she's doing a great work, but... Uh, I think also that it's when politicians start to do these things, I, you know, you can't help but wondering if they are just pandering to the voters and, yes. and want to score cheap points uh, by doing what they think people will uh, will like. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, I, I think she deserves the recognition she gets. I don't know the exact rules for the Nobel Peace Prize. So I don't know if she fulfills those qualifications but uh, well we'll see what happens well last year she was accepted by the committee Mm -hmm. so i don't see why she wouldn't be this time Mm. i don't think there is a rule that says no person can be nominated twice in a row no i don't think so all right we'll see i have actually more skeptical news from germany the mm-hmm. wonderful Natalie Grams, the former homeopath turned skeptical activist and science communicator, she has started a podcast. It is called mm-hmm. Grams Sprechstunde and is, as you might gather in German, uh, the first episode is out and we will link to it. So if you care about these things and if you understand German, you should definitely check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. I think... Natalie Grams is uh, one of the people we need to praise a lot because she it's amazing what she does. 
I, I hope that at some point we will uh, be able to hear her on a regular basis talking in English as well. But I understand that uh, she's quite busy doing the stuff for the German audiences. So, yes, yeah. that's fine. But someone else has uh, published a book that is in English. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is uh, Adam Rutherford, who is probably my one most well-known science communicator. He's a geneticist, an author and science communicator. Our audience uh, probably knows him from uh, shows like uh, Rutherford and Fry. That is a good podcast, by the way, run by the BBC. But the new book that he came out with is titled How to Argue with a Racist. History, Ooh. Science, Race and Reality. Even the title is something that I really like. I would love to read this book because that's what basically we need. We need to empower people who are science-minded to communication methods and what to do. So I haven't read the book, but I doubt, based on what Adam Rutherford usually does, based on that, I doubt that uh, the title could be very misleading. <laughs> With regards to the actual content. <laughs> Probably not, no. Yeah, so he writes about the perception of race and what the actual differences are. Obviously, him being a geneticist, he knows quite a bit about the actual science behind these differences. But he explores the stereotypes and what different uh, experiences can lead to a difference in, in perception of those differences. So I'm um, really looking forward to, to reading that. It's been on sale since the 6th of February, so it's already available. Try to get a hold of that book if you can. And uh, yeah, probably even let us know what you think. You can, you can contact us by email at info at theesp.eu. You can contact us on our Facebook page and uh, tweet at us at espodcast underscore eu if you want to get in touch. Please do so. Mm-hmm. Very good. We love being contacted by listeners. Absolutely. All right. I think we should crack on with the actual show. And uh, since Yelena is not here, I will be taking over again with This Week in Skepticism. Okay, let's see who today's birthday boy is. Mm. I believe we are going to be a day late in uh, celebrating his birthday, mm-hmm. given our Thursday release. But it is naturalist, biologist, probably even geologist, Charles Robert Darwin. Ooh. I'm not sure we've had him on our This Week in Skepticism segment yet. I don't think so. He's totally worthy of being mentioned several times. Mr. Darwin was born on the 12th of February, 1809. Hence the popular Darwin Day celebrations occurring on this day. In the gorgeous little town of Shrewsbury in Shropshire, quite close to the Welsh border. I've actually been there. Ah, really? I've seen the house. It's called the Mount where he was born. I think it's some kind of an office building now. It's not available for uh, visitors just like that. It's not a museum, but it's quite a nice place. And his family was uh, rather wealthy, so... They could afford to get a good education for him. He was supposed to become a doctor, like his father, Robert Darwin, but the young Charles found it boring, and some parts of it even appalling. So he dropped out of the University of Edinburgh to go to Christ's College in Cambridge as a preparation to become an Anglican parson. What a change, right? Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) 
Oh, I can't, I can't be a doctor. Let me be a parson. Mm. No, I, I don't think it was his decision anyway. Now that didn't quite work out either. And after, after a series of fortunate events combined with the, the persuasion of his father to allow and fund his participation, he set out on a journey around the globe on board the HMS Beagle, very famous ship, surveying land and collecting fossils and live animals. That took almost five years. Not long after that, he became a bit of a celebrity among other naturalists, and Charles Lyell and others work um, gave a perfect background into the ideas that started to formulate in his head. In July 1837, he drew a sketch of how he thought different species could develop from others and called it a transmutation of species. That is the famous drawing of the evolutionary tree with the comment on top, I think. Hmm. You're familiar with that, right? Yes, so is that I love that little sketch and how you can point to that as a beginning of a great theory being explained in detail later by him. But it took him 20 years mm. and a, a lot of persuasion by his fellow scientists like uh, Thomas Henry Huxley to, to realize he had to publish all of his findings. And eventually he did. John Murray, publisher, released a book titled The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Yeah. And it was published on the 24th of November, 1859, changing the science of biology forever. Why he's relevant to skeptics is that although his theory of evolution by natural selection stood the test of time in science, so much so that it is now more like a fact than a mere theory, there are still millions of people who deny this fact. Mostly on religious grounds, of course, mm. or, or because they cannot wrap their heads around such a complex mechanism being without an intelligent driving agent. It is so deeply connected to everything that we know about the world, so well established and strongly supported by evidence that denying evolution is equal to denying science. Oh, and uh, one more fun fact about Darwin. He was a brilliant scientist and a laborious naturalist who would not have settled for less than writing a several hundred page book with detailed explanations about all the mechanisms he proposed. At some point in his life, he became so fed up with his ongoing illness of unknown causes, of course, that he sought out the help of a naturopath, Dr. James Gully of Malvern, mm -hmm. who treated him with hydropathy and homeopathy. <laughs> and, and although many homeopaths uh, like to point this out when they try to legitimize their nonsensical treatment, Darwin was quite skeptical about the effectiveness of these treat, uh, therapies and offered quite a bit of criticism to them, mm. despite becoming friends with Dr. Gully. So it, it's, it's another case of uh, some kind of a historical fact being distorted in order to serve the purposes of a group of people, in this case, homeopaths. The former, the former royal homeopath who, who died two years ago, probably. Mm. A tragedy happened. There was a tragic death of his he was the one uh promoting this like like crazy mm. this this idea that uh, that darwin actually believed in homeopathy yeah. he probably didn't quacometer published quite a good article about that actually at some point which we will link to of course all right so charles darwin is our birthday boy hmm. all right happy birthday the 12th of february happy birthday <laughs> and to me actually i was born on the 14th oh really yeah, almost born on Darwin Day. Ah, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, we are moving on to the next segment, which is when Pontus pokes the Pope. I hope you have something interesting for this week too, Pontus. Oh, yes. Yes, Francis is worried about the poverty in the world. On 5th of February, he participated in a conference in Rome called New Forms of Solidarity Towards Fraternal Inclusion, Integration and Innovation. Note the use of the word fraternal. There's no place for any sisters when it comes to inclusion, integration and innovation. (laughs) I'm sure they are so backwards in the Vatican that it doesn't even occur to them that they just left out half of the world's population. But but that's not the point (laughs) of this story. Present at this conference were a lot of high-ranking international hotshots when it comes to international finance and economics. Francis addressed the crowd as, quote, financial leaders and economic specialists of the world, end quote. I didn't see actually a a full participation list, but I know that uh, the managing director of IMF was there. And IMF is the International Monetary Fund. Her name is uh, Kristalina Georgieva, and she was appointed to that position last year. So anyway, there was a lot of important people there. Replacing another woman. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 I think. Mm -hmm. Francis said in his talk, and this was clearly aimed at the IMF, that sometimes one has to consider cancelling debts to allow poor people and nations to recover. And this was very clearly about his own home country of Argentina, because they are trying to renegotiate loans uh, with IMF at the moment. And the Argentinian minister of economy was also present. Then Francis went on in what has got to be a very long talk, and he reprimanded the world community for allowing the gap between the rich and the poor to continue to increase. But he did say that the number of poor people continue to increase which I think is factually wrong. That's not the case. The number of poor people are declining in the world, which is a good thing, and he didn't know that. But he was right in pointing out that a lot of countries are allowing rich people to avoid taxes by putting their money in international tax havens and and things like that. So I, I think overall the sentiment of the speech was not wrong as such. The world can absolutely do more to reduce poverty. However, let me remind his holy Francisness that he himself last year <laughs> managed to misplace 90% of the estimated 50 million euro collected for the poor through the Peter Spence charity fund. We have mentioned this before. It's run by the Holy See. Francis himself is the figurehead. And he's on all the ads for that charity. And it says that you should help Francis to give money to, and I quote from a poster, those who are most in need, end quote. But as I said, only 10% of that money actually reached the poor. Francis, who personally allocates these funds, put almost all of the Peter Spence money to other uses than to the poor, mainly to cover deficits in the Vatican budget. So uh, before he goes all righteous and starts lecturing the world on how to help uh, reduce the global poverty gap, I think he has some soul-searching of his own to do. So that's that. And then, of course, we have to update a little bit of sex abuse scandals. Cardinal Barbarin, 
the highest profile clerics inside the French church or the French Catholic church have um, been caught up in a sex abuse scandal by failing to prevent another priest from continuing to abuse boys. He was sentenced last year, but was now acquitted on appeal two weeks ago. Last year he was given a six-month suspended prison sentence, and uh, he offered Francis's resignation at the time. But Francis rejected it, uh, pending the appeal, so I guess... Since the appeal went uh, Barbarin's way, I guess all is now forgiven and Barbarin can count on keep on being allowed to play with the other cardinals. Although he has admitted in court that he heard of the other priest's behavior already in 2010, but didn't do anything about it until five years later when he just removed the priest from service, but he never notified the authorities because why should you really? I guess he thought it wasn't very important. So that's how they think the Cardinals... Sorry, just forgot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ah. Thank you very much for poking the Pope once again, Pontus. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to covering a couple of news items. Okay, let's start with a, with a positive story. Good. Different news outlets and yeah, always. So different news outlets and organizations seem to be trying to tackle the issue of fake news in their own ways. Mm. The BBC seems to be leading quite an interesting campaign in the form of a documentary series targeting young people, 13 years of age and above, who basically struggle to get their critical thinking skills fully developed. By struggling, I don't mean they are trying and failing. Uh, they mm. don't even try. That's, that's a problem. But that is the age group that has an innate curiosity still in them. And that drives them to, to try to find out things. But when they go online and they try to listen to the news, obviously they get misled very easily. The series is titled My World. And among the executive producers of the show is Angelina Jolie, wow. who in the last few years has spoken a lot about the problem of fake news hindering change in the world. Mm -hmm. She teamed up with Microsoft Education to produce the series. The th series aims to explain young audiences some of the most important current events they come across as consumers of news. We all are consumers of news, but this is specifically focusing on educating the young people. They present the topics in a somewhat critical, multi-aspect fashion, exploring a lot of ideas and asking important questions in order to teach them how to make sense of a world full of sensational rather than factual stories. There have been three episodes released so far. Dealing with protests and movements to save our planet. How to spot deep fake videos. Very important one, I think. What causes Australia's bushfires that has been circulating in the news for a long time. Up until this coronavirus thing, because now everyone seems to be forgetting about Australia, actually. Mm. They also talk about what it is like to live in a war zone and or under a dictatorship. This is going to be a weekly half an hour long show available on BBC World News. But the key thing is that it will be shared in more than 42 languages in multiple countries. So the BBC World, World News is there in almost all the European countries. I think in all of the European countries as well, available in certain cable packages. So 
it will be a great thing that it is available on all of those platforms. It is aired every Sunday on the BBC in the UK, uh, starting at uh, 4.30pm GMT on the Beeb, and is also available in the UK on iPlayer. But what's even better, I think, is that they have a BBC My World YouTube channel that they will upload everything onto. Mm. I've seen some of the content, and I think it'll be a great tool for all of us, not, not only for children and young adults, but for all of us, and especially for those who try to educate this age group. So well done, BBC. Mm. Yeah, that's good news. Mm-hmm. All right. Speaking of uh, news and fake news and how to separate the two, of course, we've already mentioned the coronavirus epidemic. Mm-hmm. And if you look online at news portals, it's actually hard to find any health-related news other than different takes on the outbreak. Unfortunately, of course, not everything can be trusted. So there are hacks and quacks and Russian Twitter bots and whatnot, all with different agendas and goals, and they are virtually flooding the internet with all kinds of information and misinformation. And, you know, even Trump, of course, just the other day, he informed people that uh, the virus will die out in April on its own because it's too warm for it. He's, he's such so so if we shouldn't take medical advice from a podcast don't take it from trump no yes yes but and I, I believe those listening to our podcast are reasonable enough not to take medical advice from us whereas those following trump will probably not be that reasonable yeah good no. luck trying yeah. to reason with them but some, some but someone you should listen to it is the who the world health organization mm-hmm. They have released a strategy and recommendation document on this topic, how to handle what they call the coronavirus infodemic. That's quite a clever Mm -hmm. word they coined there, merging information and epidemic to infodemic. They have launched now a Mythbusters webpage, that's what they call it, which we will link to as well, where they go through questions like, and I have a few of them here, Can ultraviolet disinfection lamp kill the new coronavirus? The answer is no. (laughs) Can spraying alcohol and chlorine all over your body kill the new coronavirus? No, don't try that. Is it safe to receive a letter or a package from China? Yes, it actually is quite safe. So they have a lot of these things on this webpage. Very good. And they send all these uh, myth busters, they send them out also on social media, on all the available social media, really. So that's very good. But they haven't tackled everything yet, so be aware. I couldn't find any mention of something that was very alarming that I heard about. That was that an Indian authority was recommending homeopathy and traditional Indian medicine as prevention. Something, yeah, this is something called the Ministry of AYUSH. And they released a health advisory on 29th of January, recommending, among other nonsense, Arsenicum Album 30C as something to prevent getting infected. Knowing uh, that this is a homeopathic remedy, what is actually in Arsenicum Album 30C? That's white arsenic 30C. So it's a hundredfold dilution done 30 30 times, times. Yes, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So that will not have anything in it. No, it won't have anything (laughs) in it at all. So don't use that to prevent anything because it's just a sugar pill. 
or, or maybe it's a solution, but uh, don't use it. There's nothing in it. 30C translates to one molecule in 10 to the power of 60, which is way beyond Avogadro's number. So uh, <laughs> and Avogadro's number is, is the number when you don't have any molecule left, actually, of the original substance, if you dilute it that much. Well, to be exact, Avogadro's number refers to the number of uh, particles in one molar and amount of the material. And that means that uh, if it's less than that, it's basically impossible to detect. <laughs> right, right. So there's nothing in it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you should go to the WHO's webpage, uh, the Mythbusters page, and uh, check it out. Yeah. However, I have to say that I, I've got a bit of a beef with, with that mm -hmm. subpage of the, their website. It's quite good, and I think the topics covered are important. I have only one thing that... <sighs> makes my skin crawl. And that is the inaccuracy in referring to it being killed. The virus is what bothers me. Mm -hmm. A virus cannot be killed because a virus is not a living organism. <laughs> and they keep referring to it. Can this and that kill the virus? Whenever we talk about the fucking virus, you should avoid the word kill because the virus can kill, but you cannot kill a virus. You have to be alive to be killed. Yeah. A virus is genetic material, it's information that has the potential to be replicated by the cells that it invades. <laughs> yeah, I think if we want to counter misinformation, we should be accurate in our ways of communicating the science behind it, or the, the behind the topics that we have at hand. This is why I think it's very important what Full Fact does. It's a British fact-checking organization. And they are hard at work when it comes to the uh, coronavirus misinformation. And they seem to have spotted the craze linking 5G and the coronavirus as well. What? 5G, yeah. Uh, there is a Facebook <laughs> post that claims that 5G is responsible for coronavirus. Oh my god. But kudos to Facebook for flagging the post as fake. And they put up the stamp that it is fake and it has been identified as fake by independent fact-checkers. Mm. That's one good point for Facebook. But there are other things that spread, like I've mentioned the collapsing people on the streets, and there are posts that exaggerate the number of deaths and the number of infected people. Like uh, some posts even claim that there are hundreds of thousands of people already dead yeah. because of this. And of course, because of it being a global effort trying to tackle this uh, coronavirus, this leads to people who don't accept the officially released information. That triggers them to start their new conspiracy theories or jump on the bandwagon when they see one that fits their whatever kind of views. So it's not easy. But Full Fact and factcheck.org, they both published their own list of misinformation. And uh, factcheck.org, which is an American fact-checking organization, they say that coronavirus misinformation spreads like a virus. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I quite like that one. Yeah. There are claims that it was uh, started by a spy from Canada and that it was a manufactured in a lab. Canada. And uh, yeah, so God, things like what that. What people make up. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, but I, I, just a comment about this service of Facebook where they flag things as misinformation or possible yeah. misinformation. Mm -hmm. 
I see that already backfiring. I see people on Facebook saying that, oh, this is very suspicious. Why is Facebook deciding what is true or not? They are manipulating the free flow of information and things like that. So not everybody takes that as a positive thing. Yeah, I know. And this is even people that I know or know of that are not really into spreading fake news. They just think that's very suspicious. Yeah, and uh, it's in a way, it's totally understandable. Yeah. And I have to say that I do definitely agree with the criticism towards the, the Chinese government. Yeah. Because the way they try to cover it up, it, it really resembles the way that the, the Soviet government tried to cover up Chernobyl. Yeah. They tried to act as if nothing had happened. But after a while, they realized that, oh, oh this is getting more serious than we thought it would. Mm. And the same thing happened to the Chinese government. And now I think a new movement will emerge of this because it shows how a totalitarian government that has total control over the media and everything can take things astray very, very fast if they're not willing to act responsibly. Mm. And this will raise the question of whether that authoritarian regime in China is a good thing to have because I don't think people in large quantities or large numbers really dare question that. But now it might happen. Yeah. So who knows what kind of effect it will have, the coronavirus and uh, the, this uh, outbreak. Yeah. Oh, this is an epidemic already. Mm. Yeah. All right. So there are not many things that we need to worry about, right? Well... Have you noticed it's getting a little bit warmer lately? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, according to the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service, January 2020 was the warmest month of January ever recorded. Well, big surprise. Mm. It was a bit hotter in certain parts of Europe than in others. The mm-hmm. further north, the bigger difference it was. So in Norway... Russia, Finland and Sweden, the temperature was 6 degrees Celsius higher than the average month of January during the period 1981 to 2010. That's quite a lot. 6 degrees above the average. That is quite scary. Yeah. And in certain places it was absolutely crazy. In one village called Sundalsora in Norway... They had one record day where the temperature was 25 degrees above the monthly average during that period I mentioned. So that's 19 degrees Celsius compared to the average expected minus 6 degrees. And I know we have a lot of American listeners, so a quick uh, translation here. 19 degrees is 66 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, that compares to uh, 22 degrees Fahrenheit, which was expected. And a 26 degrees Celsius difference is 44 degrees difference in Fahrenheit. And it's not just Europe. There have been extreme or higher than usual temperatures in most of the US, in eastern Canada, Japan, eastern China, Southeast Asia, parts of Australia, of course, we've heard of all the fires, and parts of Antarctica. So it's not just hot in Europe, and it's not just the the Northern Hemisphere, too. Speaking of Antarctica, there was, if I can keep out of Europe for just a second, there was just now a record day recorded in Antarctica on 7th of February at uh, Esperanza, which is on the northern tip of the continent's peninsula, 
the thermometer showed 18.3 degrees Celsius. That's 65 degrees Ooh. Fahrenheit. 18 <sighs> degrees. Uh, that's not what I, you know, associate with the South Pole. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the highest uh, ever recorded temperature in Antarctica. That is quite something. Yeah. Some people, of course, and I've met a few of them, say that, of course, it is getting warmer, but it's not our fault. It's not man-made. <laughs> so maybe it's not the CO2 rising in the atmosphere at all. Anders, have, I'm sure you've heard this as well. What have you heard as the most common argument from those people? Why is the climate changing if it's not the CO2? It's uh, There are two things. One of them is uh, volcanoes and the other thing is um, the activities of the sun. Yes. So solar activity. That's exactly what uh, I've heard as well. So many times. So I had to really look into at least the sun activity. And um, if you go to uh, NASA, there is a very clear diagram that shows, and we will put the link in the show notes, it shows the fluctuations of the energy from the sun hitting the earth since 1880 and comparing it with the rise in temperature. And there is no correlation. Of course, uh, NASA is part of the big conspiracy, so you can't trust them. That's what they will say. And that's also one thing that I heard from, from one person. NASA does this only to get more research money. Right, and and then I just looked him in the eyes and said, "Okay, NASA is about space. Don't you think they could get research money to research the sun if they wanted to? It's a totally nonsense yeah. uh, argument." And and the other thing is that now the person is in charge who pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. <laughs> so whatever NASA publishes that says that climate change is real and it's human-induced climate change and we need to act on this, it will more likely result in them getting lower funding. Yeah, that's true. Uh, instead true. of... So it's it's like... Uh, it's quite brave, actually, of uh, NASA to publish material like that. But also, I think about that published uh, data set is that they have looked into a lot of different factors. One of them is being solar activity. The other being the uh, differences in the tilting of the, the axis of the Earth. The other thing is being volcano activities and all the different factors. When you put them all in the same graph and you plot it against the temperature changes through time, then you'll see that all of these different factors will clearly draw the same conclusion that the most important among those factors. So the different the different changes, the small variations in the change can be explained by those other factors. But the overall trend can only be explained by the amount of CO2 that we're pumping out into the atmosphere. Yeah. That is beyond doubt now if you look at the science and the facts and the numbers. It's undeniable, scientifically speaking. It is. Okay, but then... <laughs> but then there are companies, of course, the oil companies, of course, uh, those that have a vested interest in consuming more and more fossil fuels. And one of them 
is obviously they're not they, they don't have a vested interest in consuming fuel but they run on, on fossil fuels and they have a, an interest in trying to get as many travelers as possible on board and those are the airline companies mm. and one of those airline companies is Ryanair Ryanair is being criticized for this service quite a lot because they try to be the cheapest they try to keep keep prices very low Whereas it, it can only be done by reducing the service, reducing the size of the, the bags that you can carry on and, and stuff like that. However, even among all that criticism, including something that happened in April 2019, it was published on the BBC that Ryanair was found to be one of Europe's top polluters based on EU published data. Yeah. The EU's Transport and Environmental Group published that data. And it looks like Ryanair Island is in the top 10 <laughs> when it hmm. comes to carbon emitters. And a couple of months later, they claim that they are the lowest carbon dioxide emissions airline available. Really? So this is just outright mad. And it, it is totally, completely unsubstantiated. It's not backed up by any kind of evidence. So... The Advertising Standards Authority in the UK banned their claims, so that their adverts have been banned. But the problem is that the Advertising Standards Authority of Ireland has to do the same. But even when they decided to bring down all the ads that have been banned, they still say, after complying with the ruling, that the emissions per passenger are 25% lower than any other major airlines. And they don't give any source of that piece of, of, of data. Just making so, it up, yeah. Absolutely making it up. First of all, by nature, an airline cannot be a low emission way of traveling. No. It's just out of the question. For now, this is the worst you can do. Of course, jam packing the cabin with a lot of people and putting them so close together that you can transport a lot of people at once... That can help because per person, per kilometer rates of carbon emissions can be reduced by putting more people on board. Yeah, but only compared to other air travel, not compared yes. to trains or, or so. Yeah, trains or even buses. So this is why actually I'm thinking that I'm traveling all across the globe and I'm just a fucking prostitute because... <laughs> I could make the decision of not traveling by plane anywhere, but I have to for money, <laughs> for the money that I make. You sold I have your to soul. Travel, yeah. yes, I have to travel across the globe all year round, and obviously, that has been giving me quite a hard time actually in the last couple of months. That I've been thinking of how to solve that issue. I want to do the right thing. I want to make an example of what I do. But uh, at the same time, I need to make money. Mm. So I do understand the situation from a lot of people's point of view. But definitely, don't believe Ryanair saying that they are a low-emission airline. <laughs> this is just fucking bollocks. It's <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So I believe that was all we wanted to talk about in terms of news. So I'm really wondering, Pontus, have you found someone... That has been really wrong or really right. Basically. I'm afraid I have. All right, so big spoiler don't go and get acupuncture. And this is a, a okay. rather tragic story that I will go into, and it doesn't end well. And actually, I want to give a bit of a trigger warning. Maybe some listener will find it a bit disturbing. 
So if so, you have to skip forward. I have read the actual court judgment in a trial that came out on 5th of February about an acupuncturist. And the story goes like this. In March 2018, a Swedish man who was suffering from leukemia died in connection to visiting an acupuncturist in the city of Värnamo in Sweden. He was diagnosed with this disease already back in 2008. And he went through a number of treatments against the leukemia over the, over the nine years when he then decided to quit those and rely only on acupuncture instead. He was in... Uh, yeah. yeah. He was, but it wasn't working, so I can sort of understand it. He was, it was, was working at first, but the, then the treatment started to uh, not work anymore. And that happens, unfortunately. So he was in quite bad shape by March 2018. But he was told by the acupuncturist that he would have a tough period now, but uh, up until July 2018. So she, was ma- she managed to look into the future as well. And in July 2018, everything would uh, turn and he will become better. But in March 2018, he was so sick that he needed quite a lot of assistance from his wife just to get from the car into the acupuncture clinic. This was the fatal day that I'm going into now. When he was in there, he got several long needles in the chest, in the heart and the stomach areas by the acupuncturist. And he was told to do his movements, which uh, I don't know exactly what the movements was, but it's something that he was doing while he was lying on his back. He then got trouble breeding and he got some (sighs) ginseng and ginger to quote-unquote clear his throat and he needed to take a bathroom break. And when he returned, he suddenly felt very ill and he passed out on the bed where he was being treated. His wife was told to say what she later called a strange chant of some sort, while um, the acupuncturist uh, stuck and removed a long needle into the man's throat. At that point, he came to, but the wife decided it was time to call an ambulance, which was very sensible upon time. Before the ambulance... I would say so. Yeah. Then the story goes on to say that before the ambulance uh, came, the acupuncturist stuck uh, some shorter needles in the man's feet and left them there. She also did several other things with needles in several areas, manipulating them in place, but removing them before the uh, ambulance came. Then uh, they came to the hospital and at the hospital, the needles in the feet were removed and the man was given morphine against acute stomach pain. He was also x-rayed, he had increasingly hard to breathe and of course got emergency assistance of all kinds. But two and a half hours later he was declared dead. So uh, quite a disturbing story about the facts here but how about the trial because i read through the trial document because through uh, freedom of information act you can get hold of that the family of the man filed those charges against the acupuncturist for manslaughter and the court judgment gets a bit weird i think it spends a long time deliberating on the fact that the wife cannot exactly remember which length of needles were being used And also that some of the things she testified was from notes that she had taken down a couple of days after it happened. 
However, the autopsy report shows marks from a lot of needles and critically the cause of death was due to fluids gathering in the sac of the heart. There's a more scientific word for that. I hope it's understandable. But there was a fluid gathering in the sac of the heart so much that the heart could no longer beat and it couldn't because it couldn't expand enough due to the fluids. So that's what caused the death. The report also shows that there is one puncture mark on the surface of the heart. However, the court found that it could not be proven without a doubt that the fluids were caused by that needle because it could also be from the leukemia, they say. Also a strange objection from the court is that it isn't clear whether the injury to the heart was from the fatal day or if it was from a previous treatment. As if, would that make a big difference? If it's, if it's from the same kind of treatment that uh, was administered by the same person, yes, does it really make a difference? No. <laughs> no. Oh, by the way, it's the pericardium. That's, that's what it's called. That's the sac of the heart, that I called it. Yes. The sac of the heart, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pericardium. Okay, good. Thank you. So, together with some other minor reasons, the court said that it could not find it proven that the man had died from the treatment on the day uh, that he died. So the acupuncturist was acquitted. So I know that law is very different from science, and it's also different from what you intuitively would feel is common sense. And I'm not a legal expert, and uh, I am not a doctor either. The whole thing is a terrible tragedy, uh, no matter what exactly happened. But there are several questions that I would like to highlight. Why is it okay from a legal standpoint, for a person with no formal health education to ram needles into people's hearts. No matter if it causes Mm -hmm. death or not, why should that be allowed at all? Then there is another question that was totally ignored in in the media and by the case and, and all the reporting around it. Why is it okay for this acupuncturist to treat a cancer patient? She has no expertise (laughs) that is recognized by society. She has no access to the patient's journals, no obligation to keep any such journals herself. And most crucially, providing cancer treatments is expressly forbidden by law in Sweden. Why is that not addressed by the legal system in this case? So again, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. But even if this is the law, that it would be permissible... It is not justice, in my opinion. This acupuncturist was doing something that is very, very unethical and immoral and cynical. And um, if this is allowed, I think the law should be changed. Yeah. Yeah. What she did to this man, whether it led to his death or not, should not be allowed. As we reported a couple of months ago, there was an investigation ordered by the Swedish government regarding suggested changes to regulations regarding so-called alternative medicine, which is, of course, not medicine. We in the Swedish skeptics were asked, like several other organizations, to file a formal opinion on the suggestions. We liked a lot of the suggested changes. All in all, this is a big step forward if it's implemented. But there was one thing that we objected to, and that was that the investigation suggested that there would be a continued exception for acupuncture when it comes to treatments that penetrate the skin. And that is not something that we think non-medical personnel should be allowed to do. And uh, this story illustrates the point. 
Also, to remind people, acupuncture has not been proven to be able to treat any diseases at all. So there's really no upside in allowing it. I I completely agree. And uh, the only thing that uh, acupuncture has uh, been indicated to work for in certain circumstances is pain relief. Yeah, and even even that is uh, in doubt. But if it, if there is any effect, that may be. Yeah, but the, there there was some kind of an effect shown by some studies. But the funny part is that uh, even though it was uh, shown to work to some level, it didn't have anything to do with uh, where you stuck the needle. No, exactly. So there is no point in trying to argue that there is some kind of an energy system, that the flow of the chi is being altered by these diseases. It's completely nonsensical. I definitely agree with is that no one without the proper qualifications should do it. But then, on the other hand, what is proper qualification for something that is nonsensical, that is absolutely pseudoscientific? What is the proper qualification for that? (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good question. In in Hungary, only doctors can practice acupuncture, but does it Mm. really do any good? I mean, yeah, should they? Should they? Even if they are legitimize the whole thing by a doctor doing it, yeah. So I don't think I don't think it's the right course of action. No. So to conclude, allowing people with no medical training to stick needles into people's hearts, giving the impression that that will cure their cancer. That is really wrong. It is indeed. I agree. Oh, by the way, I've got an acupuncturist in my group now. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, actually, yeah, actually, two of them. Uh, two doctors. Wow. Uh, very successful ones, uh, apparently. How it turned out was that when I was uh, guiding them through Wat Po in Bangkok, which is a very famous temple where there is a reclining Buddha and it is not only a temple but it's also an educational institute where Thai massage originates from. Mm-hmm. Really? And I made a comment on because there there are very nice drawings on the walls of one of the buildings inside that and those show what in the in the middle of the 19th century what people thought and what they knew about human anatomy and human physiology so it was an educational center and i made a comment on uh, how traditional thai medical practices happened and how how they developed with the help of old chinese medicinal practices and methods and treatment and I made a comment that, uh, oh, by the way, that what we call now traditional Chinese medicine is not that. It's an invention of a combination of different things. And it's basically an invention that was done by the Mao Zedong's government mm. to somehow overcome the problem of not having enough... Real doctors, no. Real doctors uh, to, to provide the services, especially in rural areas. Mm. And then this guy came up to me afterwards and said that I think you should refresh your memory or or you should check your sources because traditional Chinese medicine is something that is remarkably well established and it's uh, and it and it works like a charm if it's done correctly. Okay, I said, and then it turns out that oh yeah, this guy did traditional Chinese uh, medicinal training and the wife did something similar and uh, then. Yeah, yesterday I had to listen to him explaining what I, I made the mistake of asking him about chi 
and uh, <laughs> and he started to just talking gibberish and everything out of his ass. Um, yeah. He was repeating the same things that I've heard over and over again, like a million times, and nothing new was told. But I knew exactly that he would not be able to give me any kind of information. He would just repeat whatever we keep hearing. Yeah. And this is what happened. D- did you say he was a doctor? He was a doctor. He's a doctor. A he's, real he, doctor, a medical doctor. doctor. A real doctor. Yes. Oh, fuck. In Hungary, acupuncture can only be practiced by medical doctors. Doctor. Yeah, you said that. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. it, it's a general rule. Mm. Wow. Yeah, the two, two of them are not the only people who are into weird stuff. Right at the first day of the tour, I had to listen to someone explaining a couple of conspiracy theories about uh, coronavirus. <laughs> I tried to correct him occasionally, but he's so convinced that it's it's almost impossible. There was another uh, woman who combined it with Nostradamus and uh, Nostradamus' uh, <laughs> oh, prophecies. Boy. So this tour is like a nightmare for me in that regard. <laughs> I just feel like I, I want to go home. And f- fortunately, tomorrow I'm going home. Okay, uh, good but, for you. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All so right. thank you very much, Pontus. All right. For pointing out who's been really wrong lately. And I think that concludes our show. But before we go, let me share with you today's quote. And that is by British evolutionary biologist and author... Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Who else? If we celebrated Darwin this week, we needed to find a quote from Dawkins. And it goes like that. I think that the appetite for mystery, the enthusiasm for that which we do not understand, is healthy and to be fostered. It is the same appetite which drives the best of true science, and it is an appetite which true science is best qualified to satisfy. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. One has to let it sink in, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good thought. All right. So with that, we are finishing our show for today. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much, Pontus, for joining me. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rob and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesb.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. So on 5th of February, he participated Who in a conference. It? Sorry? Who isn't worried about the poverty? In oh, sorry. Just, sorry. <laughs> I misheard you. I didn't understand. <laughs> All okay. right. In what has to be a... No. What has... Hmm. Then Francis also went on 
in what has to be had. What? <laughs> Can't do it. What did you write, man? I don't. I, 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 I have to probably do something here. I also went on to in what <laughs> on <laughs> bloody sentence here. Uh, in what has got to be a long talk. It actually makes sense. Okay. <laughs> paka paka. Peace <laughs> out. Hasta luego.